Let's read from Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a, a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by a man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper, and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates with the 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold, like transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, 
nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If uh, a sermon is a meal, I want to give you an aperitif. I want to give you a starter. I want to give you a starter in chapter 20. You may have noticed we've had to because we've only got 13 weeks to walk through Revelation, which is one of the most complex books of the Bible. And I have a looking forward to a lie down when we finish it. But we've had to miss out some chapters. We've had to have some brief comments here and there on some parts of the Bible that we've uh, just not had time to look at. And one of the chapters we have not read is chapter 20. And it's a very important chapter in the Bible. Um, many Christians disagree. Many Christians are confused by it and many Christians want to skip over it. Now, I've had to do that, but I've not wanted to, actually. And let me give you just three or four minutes on it before we look at chapter 21 that we have read this morning. Because of family life, I don't normally get to see a whole 90 minutes of a football match these days. Don't get to see a whole 80 minutes of a rugby game. Perhaps I see it in different parts over a night like I have this week. And I don't get to see a whole series of crickets. But then who does? I love watching live sport. And so what I have to do now, and I'm very content with it, is to say, who won? What was the result? Revelation that we've seen with all these lovely images, some of them complex, some of them easier to understand, some of them very difficult to understand. They all teach us the same thing. In the end, God wins. In the end, God wins. That's what chapter 20 does again that we've not read. It's uh, lots of rich imagery. It's another perspective on the same reality that we've seen at least four times so far in the book of Revelation. And a lot of confusion comes about this period of time called the millennium. To a younger generation, millennium is a song that Robbie Williams sung about 10 years ago. But this period of a thousand years, I treat, like all the numbers in Revelation, as a symbolic unit of time. It's a period of time that uh, shows God's loving rule and reign over the world. It's a perfect amount of time that shows his eternal rule and reign. But there's lots of room for respectful disagreement. Christians can say, I'm a pre-millennial, I'm a post-millennial, I'm an a-millennial. And they're all talking about their understanding of this thousand years period of time that some people take as literal, some people take as representative. And there's lots of room for respectful disagreement and honest debate that we don't have time for this morning. But let me just say one or two things. If you looked at verse four, chapter 20, it's a very key verse that points us back to the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter seven. It describes who is ruling and reigning over the world. And we know who rules and who reigns over the world. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And along with them, seated on their thrones in the heavenly realm, is the triumphant church. It's the martyrs that have borne faithful witness to Jesus, and they are ruling and reigning over the world. Jesus has always had authority. Matthew 28 says that. Ephesians 2 says that. 1 Corinthians 15 says that. Jesus has complete authority. And the thousand-year period of time is just, in my opinion, a picture of that. But here's where most people get tripped up. Jesus is on his throne. God the Father is ruling and reigning. When is this period of time? People disagree. But if you look at verse 2 of chapter 20, as part of the divine plan of a sovereign and loving and good God, Satan, who has already been bound, is released to do his worst. We've seen that in chapter 12 and 13. We've seen that in chapter 17 and chapter 18. 
He's allowed to do his worst by a sovereign God. And so he accuses the church. And he arranges for Jesus in his limited power, the devil, he arranges for Jesus to go to the cross, thinking that he's won. But in the great irony of the Bible, when the Satan thinks that he's doing his worst, he's doing God's work for him. And so Jesus died and is raised to life again. This moment of ultimate victory for Satan is actually the moment of defeat, where he is disarmed, where he is defeated finally. And that means that we can get ready for the new heavens and the new earth. So the rule of death has come to an end. The rule of life is about to begin. And that's the aperitif over, because now I want us to get to chapter 21. Let's have a 10-second prayer, and then we'll get into chapter 21. Father, please, would we see Jesus? That's what we need most of all. Would we leave all contention to one side? And will we be focused on the new heavens and the new earth and the glory that's yet to be, I pray. Give us hope this day, for this year, and for the rest of our lives, I pray. Amen. Amen. Sometimes, you can see on the screen, there are some major events that happen in our lives that change absolutely everything. Here's some examples. Maybe it's a birth, a new birth. A new birth changes everything in your home. Maybe it's a wedding that can change everything in your home as well. Maybe it's a recovery from a really serious illness. When things like that happen, or maybe a new guest living in your home for a long period of time, you get established a new normal. It's tiredness, it's sleeplessness, it's getting to know someone new who's now your spouse. It's getting to enjoy new life, but perhaps with limitations. It's getting used to a lack of freedom. Those four images of birth and marriage, of getting over an illness and someone staying with you. Well, John uses those four images in Revelation 21 as we start to think about the new heavens and the new earth. Look at uh, verse 7. I will be his God and he shall be my son. There's going to be a final new birth. Look at verse 2. The holy city that's coming is a different picture to show the marriage of Jesus to his church. Verse 2. There's going to be a bride dressed up for her husband. It's going to be a wedding as well as a new birth. There's going to be a great recovery. That's in verse 4. No more death. No more mourning. No more weeping. No more pain anymore. What a precious sentence. And there's going to be a permanent new guest in our midst. Verse 3 tells us that. It's central to the whole picture. God has come to dwell with humans. Here is John. He's going into the final vision of his book. And he says, I want you to understand it so clearly. So it's like a new birth. It's like a wedding. It's like a new guest. And it's like someone getting over sickness for the first time. And it's all about hope. Chapter 21 and on into chapter 22 next week when we finish Revelation. It's about a new hope. It's not the name of a Star Wars film. It's a new hope, and it's about Revelation 21. Let's look at verses 1 to 4 together. A new hope. Here is John getting into the midst of it as Jesus speaks to him very clearly, and he says, here is a vision of the future. And in verses 1, 2, and 5, we read four times the word new. It's key to this passage. Look at verse 1 and 2. There is a new heaven and a new earth. Look down at verse 5. I'm making all things new. Now, in English, there's one word for new. It's new. And so uh, new means in terms of time. Maybe you can imagine getting up in the morning. It's a new day and you hit your alarm clock. You don't want to wake up. 
You don't want the new start. So just like this man on the screen, you can see that picture in your mind of someone hitting the alarm clock because you want to go back to sleep. New is in terms of time when it comes to English. And the same word we use for new in terms of quality. Now, where we use the same word in two ways, in the original language that John writes in, new in Greek, well, there's two different words. There's neos, which means new in terms of time, but then there's kainos. Kainos means new in terms of quality. Now, this is not product placement, but imagine you're selling a new car. You want to say, this new Ford Cougar is not like the old one. It's completely different. There's a new paint job. There's a new feature. There's a virtual cockpit that surrounds you. There's all sorts of new features in the all new Ford Cougar. See the difference? It's not saying new in terms of a, a week, new in terms of a diary, new in terms of a morning or in a beginning. This is new in terms of quality. That's the word that John uses as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit four times in verse one, verse two, and verse five. He's saying this profound truth that the new heavens and the new earth, the future that God will bring, is not us building a city to God like Babel that we saw last week. This is descending from the heavens down to the earth. This is something that God is doing. This is something that God will do. He's making all things new, new in terms of quality, new in terms of glory, new in terms of beauty, new in terms of strength, new in terms of vividness. This is not time. This is something altogether new. Disney were right. It's a whole new world. That's what John is saying. Verse two, he sees coming down out of heaven from God, a new heavens and a new earth. Where Babel was constructed on the plains of Shinar that we learned from the book of Genesis, that men and women got together to build a name for themselves from earth to heaven. This is something that God has done. And so God reveals it and it descends from the heavenly realm down to earth. I mean, do you remember what it was like when you went on holiday when you were young? When you were young, maybe you had a great holiday to the beach. Maybe you had a great holiday and you saw the mountains. Maybe you went to a city of Europe and it was absolutely wonderful. But then you go back there when you're an adult. You go back to the same beach, to the same walk, to the same city, and it's all a bit dirty and grubby. It's not like you thought it was. It's not how you remembered it. You remembered it better than it was. That's a picture for helping us to understand the new heavens and the new earth. When we go back to somewhere and it's not as great as it was when we were child, children, and we had childlike expectations and, and childlike vision and a lack of cynicism in the world, everything we look for in this world points us to somewhere that is not in this world. It prepares us for a longing for a future reality that we were made for. And so it's no surprise that the new reality descends from an out of this world place down into our world. This longing for a world that you've never had, that you've never been to, points us to a world that we were made for and that God will bring to a new reality and a new manifestation in a vivid new manner. John says you can look for it in this world, but it's not there. But John does say it's coming. It's coming. God's going to do it. Behold, 
God is making everything new. We've been longing for this if we are students of the Bible from Genesis chapter 3, from the very opening pages when our relationship with God was ruined and so our relationship with all of the world was ruined. Adam and Eve, they began to experience fear and anxiety. Their relationship with God fell apart, so their relationship with one another fell apart. Their relationship with the created order fell apart, all because their relationship with God was destroyed. And look at verse 4. When our relationship with God is put right, everything else falls into its appropriate place. Verse four, there'll be no more death. When the new reality, the new heavens and the new earth comes into being, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. All of that will be wiped away, not with a broom, but with the tender touch of God himself upon our cheek. What a precious image. That's coming, that's the reality. That's the new hope that John says, this is what you need so that you can persevere until the Lord Jesus returns. But all of that newness is only possible because of the central promise of verse three that we must not miss. Look at verse three. Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. In other words, the relationship with God is healed, and so everything is healed. This word dwell in verse 3 is so important. It connects us to the Old Testament, and it connects us to the Gospel of John as well, where in John 1.14, John, the writer of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, uses the same word. Heaven and earth come together in Jesus. God will tabernacle with his people not in a temporary way of the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament, but God, heaven will walk earth. Jesus will come and dwell with his people. He tabernacled with his people and we gazed upon his glory. Jesus came. That's what we celebrate at Christmas to an unwelcoming people and an unknowing world. And light came into the darkness but he's doing it not on an individual level, on a cosmic scale. He's coming to live forever in our midst, says verse 4. His presence will be healing and comforting. We want to celebrate his presence because heaven and earth come together in the person of Jesus. That's the new hope that John points us to. But it's not just a new hope that's intangible. Verses 5 to 26 say it's a solid hope. It's a solid hope. You might have noticed in verse 5 of Revelation 21, God speaks. God has not spoken since chapter 1, verse 8 of the book of Revelation. He's been using intermediaries, angels that have come and spoken to John and revealed the reality that's beyond the curtain. He's revealed history, but now God comes as a sign of the newness and the intimacy in the relationship and speaks to John doesn't just speak to him he dwells with him doesn't just speak and dwell with him because he's dwelling with him verse 4 God tenderly can stoop and wipe away tears from cheeks he can ease and comfort sorrowful hearts it's a moment of utter gentleness and tenderness as the creator of the universe the sustainer of the universe stoops down and touches humanity in a very real way with his presence. 
doesn't send a junior official. God stoops down. He relates to his people in a new and an intimate way. It's very easy to miss this main point that Revelation is, Revelation is written a lot like the book of Exodus. Now, N.T. Wright has helped me with this in an unbelievably clear way. Let me explain to you what I mean. We've seen in the book of Exodus, God rescuing his people from the slavery and bondage of Egypt through the Red Sea. And he's longing for his people to meet with him on his mountain, Mount Sinai. He's going to rescue his people and they will congregate and dwell around Mount Sinai because God wants to dwell with his people. Let my people go, he says to Pharaoh, so that they may worship with me. And on this slide, you can see the whole book of Exodus in summary form. God rescues his people. And then he speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai to build a tabernacle. But just as he's dwelling with this intercessor, Moses, who sees his glory to such a degree that his face radiates the glory of God. When Moses descends with the two stone tablets of the testimony of God, the Ten Commandments, what does he see? He sees a worshipping people, but they're worshipping a parody of the God who loves and sustains and who made them. They're worshipping the golden calf that they've made with jewels from their own person, from gold of earrings and jewellery. And so God threatens to withdraw from his people. But Moses in chapter 33 and 34 pleads as a forecursor to Jesus. He pleads with God. He intercedes with God on behalf of his people. Don't withdraw your presence for them. And God concedes and says, I will dwell with my people. This is how I want you to construct the tabernacle. That chapters 35 to 39 of the book of Exodus. And because of the mercy and grace of God, God descends and dwells with his people in chapter 40 of the book of Exodus. No more will there be separation. No more will there be don't come to the mountain of God. Don't even touch it. No more will there be the thundering presence of God. No more will there be the wrath of God against sinful people who construct a parody of worship. God will dwell with his people. Now, can you see how the book of Exodus prepares us for the book of Revelation? We've seen through the cycles of seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls being opened, the judgments of God as they're represented by the plagues of Egypt. We've seen the redeemed people of God gathering by the sea, like the Red Sea, singing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. We've seen the great deception, Babylon, a parody and copy of the New Jerusalem, just as the golden calf is a parody and an awful copy of the true worship that God alone deserves. And now we're prepared to see God's glory descend and dwell with his people, verse 3. All the promises from the Old Testament, all that Jesus has pointed us to in the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark and Luke as well. We now see God descend. It's foretold in the book of Exodus and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. And it's seen in the person of Jesus. And now God is descending to dwell with his people. It's all there in verse 3. And yet there's all this strange imagery, not of a husband and a bride, not of a wedding, but of a building site on a huge scale. And it's all about the identity of God's people. 
Did you notice once again, as we've seen, the number 12 appears? There are 12 gates. And on the 12 gates, you see the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. You see in verses 12 to 14 that the 12 apostles of the foundation stones, the, the gospel of the apostles is the foundation of the church. The city walls that are vast are there to define the uh, barrier of the city, but the gates are there not for safety. They're there for decoration because God's enemies have been dealt with. There's no more sea, symbolic of chaos in verse one. These extraordinary measurements that we see make this reality clear in verse 16. This huge city is vast in terms not only of its footprint and its length and its width, 1,500 miles long and wild, which is exactly the same size as the Roman Empire, but it's also 1,500 miles tall. It's a cosmic cube that if you Google it, there's some very odd imagery in Google, but there's this huge cosmic city of God that's descending from the heavens to earth, and it's a cube which is symbolic of the place where God dwells. Well, we, if we had times, we could go back to see the tabernacle. We could see 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, that the tabernacle, the holy of holies, where God dwells within the portable tent of God. It's a cube. And here John sees a new reality where God will be at the center of his people. It's picture language. Of course it is. But there's the glory of God, verse 11, gleaming from every pavement stone that's so pure it's like glass but it's gold and all these symbolic uh, precious stones and jewels are there to show the glory of God dwells in this place in a rich and beautiful way and so because God is there in his purity and his holiness and his glory that means there's no room for not just for the chaos of the sea verse one but verse eight there's no room for anyone who hates God's word or his world in the world of life, there's no room for death. And this city is not just a dream. It's not just John thinking up something fanciful. Everybody, verse 7 says, has a right already if you are in Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, you already have the keys to the city. You have a right to walk on its streets. Now, let me tell you just how practical this is. This really matters. This is not something ethereal or remote. This is really practical. This is not just Christian teaching on what heaven is like. This is solid hope. It was solid hope for the people who heard this in the first century. If you went back to Revelation chapter two and three, remember that a long time ago? If you went back to Revelation chapter two or three, we met the church in Turkey, the church in Asia Minor, the church that John was writing to and they were suffering and the suffering was going to get a whole lot worse. You can see that from verse four of our chapter. The tears would end. The sorrow would be no more. But John was writing to a suffering people. And sadly, they're suffering. If it were a furnace, the temperature was about to increase tenfold. Because as we've seen before, the Roman emperor, the Caesar of the day, was Domitian. He was going to come and his empire was going to issue a huge, large, widespread persecution of Christians. I mean, you can see a picture of him on the screen. Christians' homes were going to be looted and plundered. They were going to be taken away and taken to be sport in the arena of Rome. They were going to be torn to pieces by wild animals. They were going to be made just for pleasure 
into human candles. There are going to be thousands of Christians crucified on the roads leading into and out of Rome. Terrible, terrible suffering. And what did Jesus speak to John to give those Christians comfort? He said, we need to write down the new and solid hope that every Christian has. We need to describe the new heaven and the new earth. We need to describe the city of God rather than just the city of man, the city of Babel. And the simple fact of history that you can read from Christian and non-Christian historian alike, take Tom Holland for a modern version, is this hope was not fanciful pie in the sky when you die. This hope was the very thing that every Christian needed. Tertullian, one of the uh, historians of the church, one of the early church fathers, said something like this, the blood of the martyrs is like the seed, the seedbed of the church, because the more they killed us, the more our movement grow. Christians, as they died and non-Christian historians watched on, they could see the Christians dying with poise, not in an grin, but the Christians had something, something as they faced the jaws of death. They had something different from anyone else who faced the same end. And that's because people like you and me, every human is a hope-filled person. Let me give you an example of two women. Two women that are on a production line. Maybe it looks something like this. How you behave now is completely shaped by what you believe in the future. Here are two women on a production line. They're working for 10 hours a day and they're taking a widget and they're screwing it into a wadget. Let's call it that for technical terms. They're taking a widget, one thing, and they're screwing it into a wadget. And they've got to do that for 10 hours a day, day after day after day. But I pull one of the women aside and I say to her, I'm going to give you £20,000 for a year's work, 10 hours a day, screwing a widget into a wadget. Go back to work, please. But I take another woman who sits opposite her to one side and say, I'm going to pay you £20 million a year for taking a widget and screwing it into a wadget, and you need to do it for 10 hours a day. Now, what those two women think about the future will define how they work. The first woman who gets £20,000 for screwing a widget into a wadget, she would work really hard, perhaps for a week, perhaps for a month, and then get really discouraged because it's a brain-dead job, taking one thing and screwing it into another. But just imagine the second woman who's promised £20 million. She'd be, there. She'd be whistling as she works. She'd be there with a smile upon her face. She'd be there doing the same thing over and over again. When she got discouraged, she would persevere. When she got disheartened, she would keep going. Why? Because of the future. Her hope for the future is so different from the reality that the first lady with £20,000 rather than £20 million promised to her in the future. And isn't that the same for you and me? If you think that this world is all there is, if you think that no one will remember you when you die, if you think that there's no justice for the world, that death is just the final point. It's just the circle of life. That affects how you live now, won't it? And Christians, if you believe that this world is not all there is, if there is a day of justice, if there is a day of judgment and wrath, then won't that motivate us to share the hope that we have in Jesus? 
Won't that enable us to persevere when we see all that's going to happen? Solid joys, lasting treasures, none but God's children know. We're hope-filled and hope-made people. This is the beautiful destiny for everyone who's in Christ. So it's a new hope and it's a solid hope. And then here's my final point. If that's the future, if this is solid and lasting hope, how do you get it? How do you get it if you don't have it already? Here's the answer. It's in the passage in sin verse six. It's in verse six. Here's the hope that you have to believe. You need to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the founder and originator and sustainer of Christianity. Christianity is not a religion, as we say every time on Christianity Explored. It's a relationship with our maker. And Jesus has made that relationship possible through his death and through his resurrection life. Look at verse six. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of water of life. Remember back in John's gospel, John who wrote the gospel as well as the book of Revelation. Well, in John chapter four, Jesus meets a very hardworking woman who's collecting water at a well at midday. He says to her, woman, are you thirsty? I promise you a water that will mean that you'll never thirst again. And the lady thinks that Jesus is speaking about literal physical water that we get from our taps rather than from a well. But Jesus is saying, I can give you a water that if you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. You'll never have any longing again for value or love. You'll be satisfied in me in a way that no other drink or relationship or career or purpose can ever satisfy the deep longing of your heart. Even now you can get a foretaste of it, says Jesus. The grace that I have, the salvation that I will promise, the spirit of God that will come into your heart, even today, says Jesus to this lovely woman, you can have without cost. And what Jesus says to the thirsty woman, he says to every thirsty heart today. Because not at the beginning of John's gospel, but at the end, when Jesus was on the cross, he says a lot of very significant things. But John records that Jesus says, I thirst. And it's a wonderful picture of what's happening on the cross of Christ. Jesus paid the ultimate price, the ultimate abandonment, the ultimate loss, as he carried our sins upon his shoulders. And in his very heart, you could say, he became thirsty as he experienced the alienation and separation from his father that he'd never known before, so that you and I won't have to thirst. He died so that we might live. His thirst was not quenched so that ours might be. And when you believe that Jesus Christ did that for you, not just in his death, but in his resurrection life as the first fruits of a whole new world, then you're beginning to have the hope of God enter into your heart by his spirit. Jesus didn't just die for the sins of the world so that anyone who's thirsty can come to him and be satisfied. Verse five says, I'm making all things new. The death of Jesus pays for our sin. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from death to life is his first symbol, the first fruits of a whole new world that Jesus will usher in. See, Jesus and knowing him is just the beginning. It's a new body. He's the first fruits of life from the death. 
It's the first installment of everything new that John sees in 3D in Revelation chapter 21. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's the greatest thing that's happened in the world. And when you see that, you can live a completely new, hope-filled, hope-fueled life on into the future, no matter what the future holds. It's all about hope. That's what Christmas is about. And that's what Revelation chapter 21 is about too.